This is Laborwave Radio. Laborwave Radio is an independent podcast sustained by listeners like you through our Patreon. So if you enjoy our show and like to support our content, please become a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash laborwave. Patrons receive gifts based on their membership tiers and also exclusive access to our archives and our Discord community. If you can't support the show in monetary ways, you can also support us by following us on our social media, subscribing to our content on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts, and leaving us reviews. This is the first episode in another mini-series of Comrades Read. This time around, we're reading Kim Moody's The Rank-and-File Strategy. I'd like to thank all of the guests that came on this episode, including Andrea Haverkamp, Nick Fisher, Tim did not provide a last name, and Joe Clement. These folks are all in our Discord community, and we were able to share and discuss the article on our server and then produce this episode. We also have a future episode where we're going to be reviewing the sci-fi dystopian film about work called Lapsus. So that and plenty more coming up from LaborWave. Please stay tuned and hope you enjoy this episode. We're doing another editions of a fun series called Comrades Read. And this time we're going to be discussing in full detail with various guests, Kim Moody's very popular rank and file strategy, which was published in 2000 in a journal called Solidarity. So before we dig into the contents, I want to give our guests on this first episode of the series an opportunity to introduce themselves. So how about we go around the horn and I'll ask Andrea first to introduce yourself. You could just Say who you are and any of your affiliations that you want to share. Hi, my name is Andrea. I've been on a few times. It's always great to be here. President of Coalition of Graduate Employees uh, Labor Union uh, in Corvallis, Oregon. And I am also affiliated with the job market. So looking for organizing work if you're listening and you're in the Pacific Northwest. Well, you might not want to share this with your future employers that you're a supporter of the rank and file strategy. Well, anyone that's going to hire me, I would be short-lived <laughs> if, they did, <laughs> if they were not for it. Uh, and how about Nick? Would you like to go and introduce yourself? Uh, sure. So uh, my name is Nick Fisher. Um, he or they pronouns are both great. And I'm a vice president for grievances at the Coalition of Graduate Employees, working with Andrea on the executive council. Um, we're an AFT local, by the way, AFT 6069, based in Oregon. Um, and I'm also a member of the uh, Mid-Valley IWW general, general Membership Branch, where I'm rank and file there. No, no office. Not on the job market yet, but, uh, you know, I would like a, an organizing job as well. So if you're out there. <laughs> okay. And then we have one more guest on the call. Hey, I'm Tim. He, him. Uh, I'm a Wobbly at large in Central North Carolina. And that's about it for my intro. I'm not a very public person. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. We also have just listening in, Mike, jump on, but uh, Joe is in the background. So if you hear a voice you haven't heard yet, that's Joe. And Joe is sneaking time during work as a proper radical rank and file unionist would do. So thanks, Joe, for being in the background there. So what I thought we would do is start off with just a very quick summary of the rank and file strategy, what the arguments are that Moody makes, 
and then allow us to just kind of dig into some of the analysis and details that we think are most interesting and pertinent, and then start trying to discuss limitations, any critiques, any things that we really enjoy about it for today, and just have a fun conversation. So I'll do my best to be succinct in a summary. And I ask you all to fill in the blanks, you know, after I'm done. So in this pamphlet, that's about 30 pages, Kim Moody assesses the general weaknesses and marginality of the socialist left in 2000. And he claims that the primary reason for this was a lengthy kind of material analysis of labor unions in the United States, how they developed over the course of racial capitalism from the 18th and 19th centuries and early 20th century, but then also deduces that there's a general lack of socialist consciousness among the working class. That's a big part of the problem, too. He says that what we need to do as a beginning of a strategic process for overcoming this marginality of the socialist left is attach socialist to a mass working class organization. And he identifies labor unions, trade unions more specifically, as the apparatus that socialists need to glom onto to start building infrastructure for the socialist left. And he says specifically the strategy should be creating what he calls transitional organizations to insert themselves into trade unions and start like building a foundation upon which socialists and radicals can start organizing on. And the transitional organizations would be comprised of rank-and-file workers that would combat the bureaucratic and conservative tendencies of business unions, while also providing a base from which socialists can organize, and that these transitional organizations would look like things like caucuses, left caucuses, labor councils, projects like labor notes, so I guess like education centers for workers, and worker centers. These are some of the more specific ones that he identifies. He finally concludes his argument about the rank-and-file strategy by proposing six specific tasks for socialists in the labor movement. The first one is to build the rank-and-file to fight the boss and let the union bureaucrats get caught in the crossfire. So in other words, instill a union culture of what he calls social movement unionism through rank-and-file networks. Two, to build cross-union transitional orgs like labor notes jobs with justice and labor councils. Three, ally with community-based working class organizations. Four, build international workers' solidarity. Five, create and build a labor party or forms of alternative class-based political organizations and campaigns. And then finally, six, the task is to build a larger socialist organization that relates to all of these levels of working class activity. Okay, so that's my summary. Uh, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? What are things that you think should be also added to that? No, I, I think that was very solid. I was not super familiar with this as as a pamphlet. And I was under the apprehension that they were actually going to talk about organizing workers. <laughs> and it, it's, you know, the project is to build a socialist party, labor being, in, you know, instrumental to that. So that's what most of his argument and definition of what the problem is and how how to attack it is centered on, uh, which I found as sort of wobbly, really uninteresting. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
but I'll just leave my leave my, that. I'll stop right there. Well, just to follow up with what you're saying, Tim. So you're say, saying that the argument really suggests that trade unions, and he says this in so many ways, like Lenin described the working class as only being capable of coming up with trade union consciousness, that they're insufficient, but what you can do is kind of radicalize them as an instrumental process towards building a bigger like socialist party that will be more powerful and what we really need. Yeah, I mean, like to quote a paragraph from him, he's talking about unions and his transitional bodies that, you know, such struggles and such organizations are expressions of worker self-activity and blah, blah, blah. And uh, but capitalism attempts to demobilize and disempower workers. And uh, our experience is that it often takes people trained in organization with a commitment and a perspective of worker organization that is socialist. So he wants professional socialists to really take the reins of this, of these transitional organizations, which I thought was really interesting considering his rebuttal to, uh, to McElevey about the professional organizers. Uh, we, we just need professional socialist organizers. Uh, what do other folks think or want to share before continuing to dig in deeper? One thing that, I think for me was useful uh, in sort of setting the tone for Moody is, is the sort of historical place it is, you know, Kim Moody in various discussions that he's had about it and in other interviews and stuff notes that it's not like, you know, he created it out of thin air, you know, it's the result of what has happened for, you know, the past 30 years leading up to it of, you know, internal union upheaval and rank and file workers being sort of frustrated with the way that, let's face it, unions are self-preserving. The number one task of the union staffers and leadership, whether they're elected or paid, is to keep the union going. And so in that way, sometimes the workers get sold out, you know, in not supporting strikes, fearing to do anything illegal on the job that would actually really support the workers. And so seeing an insurgency in the radical potential of insurgency within labor unions has been since the Red Scare, um, sort of a reclaiming of what was for the 50 years prior, a large socialist political movement. And also the sort of, you know, it's a transitional stage. I know sometimes, you know, it's, is it stages? Is it taxist? Uh, Whatever it is, uh, the rank and file strategy, I think, is important in noting that it is one of the many leverages of power that in terms of a accessible leverage point for socialists, it's, it's right here and it's time we reclaim it. And sometimes that means that we are on the sharper point of the stick if we are leadership and we are staff. And what that means is embracing that there will be and there should be rank and file radicalization within your union and workplace that might challenge you and might challenge what we think of as organizational stability. Building off of what Andrea was saying, like not only is it that um, unions have to operate like within the context of capitalism and become kind of like a handmaiden to capitalism, right? But like Moody like specifically calls out mainstream unions, business unionism as cozying up to the bosses and becoming complicit in the perpetuation of the very corporations that are exploiting the workers, right? And like, I've felt this tension before a little bit where it's like, AFT calls me out to lobby 
to lobby up in like at the state capitol for increased expenditures for higher ed, right? Which is like basically me going and being a part of that process of trying to get more money for my employer, arguably so that I could then try to like, you know, we can try to negotiate it back to us through contracts. But I really appreciated that um that Moody is kind of like identifying two parties in a really general sense, right? Like he's talking about the gap and that's what this essay is supposed to fill is like when he breaks down the history, you have the unionists on one side where for like uh, the late, the business union model has beaten socialism and leftism and communism and everything out of the labor movement at large over the past, oh wait, we have to add 20, it's like 80 years, right? So he's saying that socialism doesn't exist in the unions, it exists in the student movements that came out of the 1960s and 70s. And so, yeah, I really like it. He's trying to write this way. These transitional organizations are ways for the people who have studied the theory, have all the socialist ideals and everything, but maybe aren't engaged in like working class struggle, like um, within a union context, within a working context, without a union. But these folks who might be like middle class, more cushy, bougie, how they can get more involved in that struggle. And I really appreciated that he's trying to like bring these two together and his historical analysis supports that gap, I guess. Yeah, so there's a lot to follow up on there. I, I, def, I definitely think it would be interesting to talk about, kind of, I think what you're identifying is like the role of the, the professional managerial class in this strategy, at, which is maybe a temporary class of like career and, and like highly educated people that realistically their class material position has dramatically declined since the 60s. That would be interesting. But before getting there, I think it would be good to just flesh out Moody's analysis of business unionism, how it developed, like how unions got to the point they are now. Because I do think he offers a lot of insights that are really important in that specific regard. We can maybe contest some of the conclusions that he comes up with for transforming that and the role of what that labor union should have at writ large. But I personally think his analysis of how we got here is pretty spot on. So the first place I want to start with is what he calls the common sense of the United States, following Antonio Gramsci's idea of common sense just kind of being basically mainstream ideas, ways that people just rationalize and make logical the broader systems of oppression around them. Specifically in the United States, the settler nation is founded upon mass genocide and dispossession of indigenous people, as well as a major slave system. And these foundations to the nation state provided a logic of racism and hierarchy that Moody identifies right at the very beginning lends itself favorably to business unions. Like it's easier for business unions to kind of gain a foothold and be more understandable to the masses at large when it fits pretty well within the already ideological apparatus that people are navigating. I'll let you all add to the story or share anything you want to say to that? I, I will try a little bit in that I, I agree. One thing that I would say that he sort of glosses over is, and, and going back to Gramsci, is the cultural hegemony of the state also. That's one thing that bugs me about this, his analysis of the whole thing, is how we got here today the very real interests of capital as represented in the state, not just in a fight with, with bosses, but it was also, a, a you know, the essentially the, the de-radicalization and the demobilization of the working class that happened in the run up to 
and during the Second World War. There's a lot you could put in there, and he got a lot in a very small a pamphlet. So, you know, that's a little little thing. And maybe one way that we could root our discussion in sort of putting that in there is that in many ways, business bureaucracy, leadership, and hegemony is quasi-government in a way. It's what's legal. What we're doing is illegal. What they're doing is is thoroughly regulated and what they're doing is not. And in that way, the Taft-Hartley Act is discussion for a whole nother time, but I think it's essential in how we got to where Moody is, because that was one of the big thrusts that really legitimized bosses in the eyes of the state. You know, before that, uh, you know, in the late 1800s, your middle manager, quote unquote, was the organized rank and file leader of that sector of a factory or a workforce in which if the boss told the, you know, what you might think of as a stop steward, what the crew to do, and they didn't want to do it, that would be sort of the leader. But now it sort of sapped and absorbed middle management into the ranks of bosses. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that the both the NLRA and then later the Taft-Hartley Act, it made this existing system of business unionism more legible to the state. Like it was a, it was a bureaucratic system for the state as well to administer unions more easily and like make them more readable to them, fit them into their their governing structures. So like business unions existed prior to like the NLRA and they had already a system of delegates and stewards. So they they were already friendly to the concept of the state, I would say. Like they could easily be absorbed into it and like function perfectly well with class compromise writ large. Just so long as the state kind of expanded a labor relations framework to facilitate the creation of more business unions as opposed to more radical unions. I, I think Kip Moody does make that argument, but he he seems convinced that business unions had already kind of had something of a stranglehold on the broader labor movement prior to that, and really focuses a lot on the failure of the Communist Party in like building up a more robust rank and file union culture that could have been specifically in the story of what he called uh, the tool. So Moody's talking about the trade union education league, the tool right at the early part of the 20th century and how they had this great opportunity as being one of the transitional organizations that he's talking about providing like socialist consciousness and education and a material base for organizers to, you know, use, but they were run by the communist party and the communist party didn't have a specific position on trade unions. So what happened was a lot of Communist Party members would be members of the Communist Party and they'd also be members of their union and they would just run for union office and become elected leaders. But by becoming elected union leaders, they would just become the bureaucrats of the union and just administer it top down. So he suggests that Tool, the Trade Union Education League, could have actually been successful if they had a stronger position and focused on how becoming the bureaucrats of the union is not the same as having a socialist union. So he seems to say that like business unions had kind of already defeated these left-wing unions prior to even the creation of the NLRA, or they already had more of a cultural hegemony. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I was more thinking about the second period, the creation of the radical unions that became the CIO. 
The CIO did not create those unions. Those unions were self-organized uh, by rank and file. And the CIO was a, was a bureaucracy imposed upon them by the labor relations framework. There, there were no CIO without the Wagner Act. Uh, those would have been class struggle unions existing outside of any labor relations framework. And he tends to blame a lot of that on that the, the communists were too focused on doing big, big, uh, big P politics, wheeling and dealing at the state level as opposed to paying attention and, and actually doing class struggle politics. That to me was the big one. The, the earlier one, there's a lot of different perspectives on that, I think. Just the communist party's rule in defanging the IWW at the time was really interesting. You want to say more about that? I don't think I know that history as well. After the Russian Revolution, uh, in a nutshell, the communists had something to point at and say, this is the way to go. We need a political party. And uh, at the IWW at that time, there was a lot of debate. A lot of wobblies joined the Communist Party. A lot didn't because, you know, they, they came out of an anarchist tradition or a syndicalist tradition and they weren't joining a political party. And there was a power struggle and it was never truly resolved because the level of state repression that was visited upon the IWW sort of rendered that power struggle moot at the time. But it was, if you, I just was looking through the new uh, Ben Fletcher biography, and there's an interesting interplay there on the suspension of Local 8 by the IWW and the communist leadership of the IWW at the time that it was actually uh, a political play to defang an actual, you know, radical working rank and file union and uh, and get control of it. Yeah. And for our listeners that might not know that biography of Ben Fletcher, a black wobbly, is really, really good. Uh, I also just, is by Peter Cole, I found out when I was reading it that Ben Fletcher just so happens to live on, had lived on the same block that I currently live on in Philadelphia. Like literally, he lived on the corner across the street from my house uh, that I live in currently. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, I don't know how long you lived there, but it's there. Uh, Nick, I want to bring you into the conversation. Just make sure that anything you want to share, we're not missing out on. Related to what we're talking about, something that I've read in other sources, and I kind of appreciated that um that Moody spends so much time talking about the Communist Party's role in the um, in the labor movement during like World War II um, has to do with how the Communist Party basically got so caught up in like the anti-fascist efforts of World War II and therefore supporting like the settler states of um, America that that was like their downfall within like the labor movement movement. Right. And once we get to like the NLRA, well, we've already had the NLRA when we get to like Taft Hartley. What we see is basically this labor piece that was struck by the labor unions at large, but especially the Communist Party uh, during World War II, codified into law. So like all of those practices that are more cozy with the managers become like those business union practices become codified. Expand on what you're saying about Moody's uh, treatment of World War II in the 50s and the era of like labor peace, which for a lot of 
mainstream labor union narratives often features as like the high watermark of labor union labor unions in the country like they wax poetic about this great moment in time when we had a lot of union density there were a lot more like contracts and the gap between ceo pay and average rank and file worker pay was only 33 times instead of 3000 times or whatever so what a great moment in time right our inequality was somewhat managed but moody like you're saying points out that business unions really attached themselves to the nation state project post world war 2 during world war 2 and post world war 2 and the kind of massive increase in production levels they helped facilitate that and what moody consistently points out is that Today, unions are still kind of in this mode of operating as if we're in the 1950s, where there was a somewhat reasonable sized private social welfare system for union members that they were able to carve out and somewhat of a sizable piece of. Today, we're still like business unions are still operating in this mode as if that's what we're trying to accomplish is just expand the private social welfare system for our members exclusively and not really bother so much in trying to push for universal programs of like Medicare for all and things like that. And he's saying that the 50s really was the moment of just complete takeover of business unions. Like they just, they had already had cultural hegemony, but it really was solidified and entrenched. And today we just can't seem to break out of that at all because there's no socialists left. Uh, there's no threat to the prevailing business union order. The bureaucrats just kind of run the machine and we don't have any like strategies to break it down. And so this is again in 2000 and he's offering this as a pathway forward. He does. And I don't think we have to talk more about his like analysis, his history that much longer. He mentions kind of briefly the 60s and 70s offering like some moments. There's always been some glimpses of rank and file strategy that he points to some successes, but ultimately still stuck in a position where Business unions reign. There's no end in sight. John Sweeney taking over the FLCIO didn't do much. So this is where we are. All right. So comrades, what do we think of the argument? I know that we've already shared some critiques, but how about we talk about some of the things where we think that the strategy makes sense or it's strong, and then we can talk about some limitations. I think the absolute strongest point is the radical potential of working individuals to form organized working class structures and shape them. And I read it as that is where emergent strategy and emergent leadership comes from, not necessarily the top down, not necessarily from heady theory, although learning and education are an essential part of it. But you can see it in what has been successful today when we look at the, I think most notably, like the, the big red for ed teachers wave and teacher strikes where it was up against the union and ultimately more powerful. Because if we're going to get that critical majority nationwide in a constellation of movements, it has to begin at the rank and file level. And this is where its power is. And using that to shape and sharpen and grow the already existing union structure, I think it's compelling. And there's a reason why 
its recognition in this article has remained so popular uh, and has been adopted so much because as, as soon as you try to sort of prefigure an argument, that's it, that, that doesn't, you know, I love the comrade uh, critiques, particularly the newest ones in Spectre with Doyle Griffith, Kate Doyle Griffiths. But right, it's not a pure, there's not really pure rebuttals, right? There's critiques and building on it. And it's, and it's a strategy, not a tactic. And I think that's also important in the name rank and file strategy that it's not a prefigured tactic. It's an overall strategic lens to view organizing. The one thing that did strike me about the whole thing was just how small and limited it was. That it it was really only going to address the currently constituted unions to create a working class base of socialist workers for a socialist political party. And that struck me as, as just that, just really limited in, you know, it, it's fine, but, but for the amount of ink that gets spilled over it. And I, my critique of that would be that those are not reformable bodies. They're not structurally able to perform any sort of radical uh, transition as they're constituted in fact that that two actually have a a true rank and file led by the workers uh union that was fighting the class struggle you would have to dismantle those unions once i read this i went back to something that i'd read quite a while ago a guy named stan weir who uh, did single jack solidarity was his uh, his a compilation of law stuff, but he was a, he was a, a worker activist for many many years, and then became an academic late in life. And his critique, because like around seventy nine or so, all the all the labor federations got together and were talking about the need for a new labor party. Then, <laughs> you know, and and his take was that you know the institution of collective bargaining in this country, as it has come to operate, is reactionary. And, and until that is changed, it doesn't matter who you put in, who is leading the union, whether it's the workers, whether it's the bureaucrats, that, that you can't enter into that and not get chewed up by it or stymied by it because it's specifically formulated to take class struggle off the table. Well, I, I'd, I'd say that 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 limitation is is just baked into what is also a compelling well not well it it's it's what it what this strategy does is it's like what do we have right now what is in front of us today what can we do right now and those structures and you know the 6% of the private industry that is unionized that's what we got and to not use that as one of our tools in this strategy you know, it'd be a huge setback as, as Moody states about class consciousness, it ebbs and flows and it's, it's not necessarily a linear progression. And I think that there, there is a potential there. Yeah. Ultimately in 10 years, right. What, what can AFT, you know, be, yeah, surely uh, we will not usher in a, a such deep economic justice that CBAs and that, 
you know, Taft-Hartley regulations are out. But I think that is part of the strength of this is, is it's not, uh, uh, you know, that sort of Noam Chomsky-esque big view. It's like, what is a strategy that we can do that you can read this and you can go to your shop floor, you can go to your workplace, you can go behind the counter and think, oh, I should start really talking to each coworker I have and, and start exploring this and, and what we can do. Yeah, I, it just, it reminds me of this. Um, I just finished reading this chapter in which the author was looking at union organizing practices in, in the mining industry, and she was really pushing for, she wants academics, social scientists in particular, who are looking at working class organizations to focus on what she calls small places close to home, which makes me think about kind of what Andrea is saying about like the transitional organizations and where do those begin? Because if we're talking about like really a rank and file grassroots labor movement in which we're trying to build transitional organizations between people who are in working class struggle and people who want to support working class struggle, that doesn't necessarily start at the, even the local level of the union, right? That can start in mutual aid networks in our neighborhoods that can start in, um, all these other like different ways, like forming tenants organizations. And so I think I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon and say mainstream unions, we can just go reform them all and they can, um, they'll roll over and be committed to direct action. And they'll say like to hell with collective bargaining and all of these other practices that are really against workers, workers power. But I don't think I'm ready to say like, I'm ready to burn them all down and start with something else. And I do draw a little bit of hope from events like the Los Angeles teacher strike, which, you know, was within the bounds of contract bargaining within that like business union model. And maybe this is something that Moody in the other article that I haven't read where he's actually focusing on McAlevey's work and like the critique of, of her position. Maybe he gets into this um, and like the, the shortcomings of um, uh, bargaining for the common good. But the fact that like the LA teachers union were able to get like, limits on like charter school expansion and classroom sizes and all these things that would be outside of the traditional business union purview. That gives me some hope that there, there is still revolutionary potential in the mainstream labor movement, but it does start like what movie, like what I think Moody would say if he were to admit that there are still socialists in the labor movement, which I think we can all attest to on this call, that there's still potential. Hearing what y'all are saying, when I was reading this, it was hard for me not to immediately start thinking about like a pretty popular position within the IWW of dual carding. Like this tact, it's a, not a strategy specifically, but a tactic of like, if you're a member of the IWW, that's one card. You could also be a member of a business union. That's your second card. And with that dual card a position, try to bring IWW practices into the broader union. The goal isn't necessarily to like decertify that union or replace it with the IWW, but if you can build like a rank and file caucus and get them to be radical and like take on grievances on the shop floor and win, great. You know, like do IWW style organizing, even if it even if there's a business union that already exists. And I, I feel like there's a, a certain affinity there with like Moody's argument. Moody has kind of a more elaborate and fleshed out strategy. But I think Tim, I, I agree with two of your assessments is that. Moody does focus very narrowly on existing trade unions. That does seem to be like the arena that he says, this is where we should try to attach ourselves to the broader working class as socialists. 
he seems to kind of suggest like worker centers could be that umbrella that helps the non-organized, the unemployed, but it doesn't really talk about it that much. It's more like trade unions, that's where we should focus. So he doesn't spend much time talking about creating new unions and like radically independent unions like the IWW or otherwise. The second thing that I do agree with your assessment is that Moody's strategy is specifically transitional up to the point of building a more powerful socialist party or something of a labor party. All of this rank and file strategy really in the long run is subordinate to an organization that's bigger than that, that's like more of a official political organization, a la Communist Party of the 20th century or whatever. Like that is Moody's position. That's what I read into it. But I think when we read this pamphlet, personally, I'm like, I can kind of choose to not care about that argument. I'm not necessarily in agreement that we need to like subordinate this rank and file power that we built up just to something bigger like the DSA or whatever party might emerge. Like, I don't care about that so much, but I think that there's a lot that we can probably find in common ground with, with just specifically the idea of like rank and file workers pushing their business unions to their limits and trying to win as much possible out of that, like maybe a war of position, so to speak. But there is one thing that I think I keep seeing this analysis of Moody that I just want to share. I think it's a misunderstanding of his argument, but it's it's clearly adopted by the official platform of the DSA is the DSA adopted the rank and file strategy as it's like position as a strategy that the organization at large is going to embody. But it's very clear to me that they misunderstand Moody as suggesting that rank and file socialists not only need to get involved in their unions and build left caucuses, but that they need to take over the leadership. And he is like explicitly not saying that. He even suggests that becoming the leadership of business unions just puts you in the position of being a bureaucrat. And regardless of your radical cred, that's all just going to be irrelevant because all you're going to do is run a business union. You're just going to have individually socialist ideas, but organizationally, that's not going to transform the union. He really does seem to be set on the idea that like workers organize regardless of unions existing or not. And what we need to do is help those rank and file networks on the shop floor and not even worry about the leadership of unions. Like who cares about the leadership? So give you all an opportunity to keep going wherever direction we want to go. But I do want to share in the chat our our listener who is again embodying the rank and file spirit by stealing time on the job to be here with us is suggesting that uh, one way to think through these limitations that we're identifying is that workers within business unions are in a position to see what doesn't work and what real alternatives might look like in those unions. So, so Jeff, I'm going to understand you. You're suggesting that by kind of being familiar with the machinery of business unions and labor relations that, and the limits of collective bargaining, we can kind of get a sober analysis of what works, how, how to navigate the terrain, and maybe where the other pathways open up that we should try to pursue. What do you all think about the dual carding idea? Like, if you're familiar with the idea, do you see like a certain affinity with the rank and file strategy and dual carding? Or do you think like dual carding maybe has some different insights to offer for rank and file workers? I think that concept of being in, but not lock and step like of one's union is critically important. 
I think we see that across the UC California strikes where they were wildcat strikes that emerged at each campus, which were all a part of, you know, the, 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 the bigger parent governing union that, that bargained with uh, the UC system as emblematic of the power of a dual card strategy. It's, it's important to be able to force leadership's hand. And that's the power of, and a dual carding approach would allow multiple workplaces to, to push the same, you know, whether it is resisting a Jeff Bezos takeover of your city council that is relevant to you as workers. And when we're thinking about, you know, trade unions, you know, maybe it's your staff and your teachers both being able to organize together to push their leadership's hand for something transformative for the whole community. Yeah, I absolutely think that, you know, not seeing becoming the leaders as the objective, but leading from below. And also, if you're a leader and you endorse the rank and file strategy, you you might be closer to the pointy end of the stick than not, (laughs) you know, and and, and embracing and, and welcoming that. Yeah, I I think there's some some affinity between you know the rank rank and file strategy and dual carding. One thing I think though is the West Virginia teacher strike. That was an illegal strike led by the rank and file. That is a much closer idea to dual carding than generally rank and file movements within unions, particularly the ones that Moody was identifying in the 60s were very reformist. They they wanted to reform their union. They wanted different union leadership. They wanted union leadership to care about other things uh, than what they cared about. But fundamentally, they were not subversive to the union. So I think that that sort of difference is like as a wobbly, I don't think about taking over the existing grievance or bargaining in the union. What what I'm trying to do is form a committee to take direct action on the shop floor, whether that be in one shop or across an entire state like they did in West Virginia. So that's, uh, I think, something of a distinction that I think Moody would be more, more supportive of dual carding <laughs> uh, approach. But the, the movements that he sort of identifies as as rank and file rebellions were generally uh, more reformist in, in what they wanted out of their union leadership. Just for listeners that might not know, Kim Moody is one of the co-founders of Labor Notes. And Labor Notes was largely a project that grew out of strikes in the 70s, as well as the kind of nascent Teamsters for a Democratic Union. And they were very supportive of these kinds of efforts. So I think I think you're right to identify that he... He celebrates these kinds of reform movements, but it does seem to be consistent that his criticism of them is that you all got too preoccupied with like changing the leadership instead of changing kind of the bottom up culture in general. If I, if I may, you know, something just to share with listeners, with the guest on the call is that three of us have been in the same union together. And I, I genuinely feel like maybe not consciously, but, you know, regardless we kind of tried this experiment with the rank and file strategy in some ways in our own union. And uh, I know that Nick and I talked a lot of inside baseball throughout these experiments of trying to create like left caucuses and stuff. So maybe we could talk like empirically about 
the successes and the failures of that. I mean, Nick, you mentioned in the chat, one indication of what happened was a lot of the leadership of the union are dual carding wobblies. So do you want to uh, just talk about how it looked in that union? So I think that union cultures can be very insular. And so like we are a higher ed union. So like we have connections to a couple other like grad unions in the state, other like faculty unions. We have like connections with our faculty and our SEIU classified staff union on campus. But um, we're not well connected with like our local Ask Me or like teachers unions outside of campus, right? So we don't have all those big connections. But I would say that within like those three on campus that we have faculty, grads, classified staff, that the grad union tends to be more interested in things like direct action and being kind of rowdy. Um, I do definitely know like faculty union members who are down to like get on a picket line, but um, there are different sensibilities, different aesthetics and like approaches to organizing different unions, right? So like we're in this weird situation where our IWW branch was not a chartered branch or it's a new general membership branch. Previously, it was like kind of a reading group that did some like did like a, a local or an annual fair around like the theme of solidarity and whatnot. So when we actually became a chartered membership branch, like it just so happened that Alex, who was our staff organizer at the time, and our other at the time, um, part-time uh, staff person were, as well as myself, and I think Andrea and like a number of other people, like were some of the founding members of our IWW local. Um, so there's been like a, a strong connection, I think, between the two unions for the last year and a half of IWW Mid Valley's existence. But yeah, it's it's turned into like a lot of the folks who are active in our grad union start to get active on the in the IWW because in IWW we're also like working outside of our own workspaces and we're helping organize other other folks. Um, and we have like a a bit of a tenants union tied in there too. Yeah and I think what's kind of it's it's a little funny to me because in some ways it it kind of shows some of like the possibilities of the rank and file strategy as identified by Moody, but also kind of contradicts them at the same time in that ironically enough, I do think, and I'm maybe other wobblies back at mid Valley would disagree with me, but the success of the creation of left caucuses within the existing grad union, which by all purposes would be identified appropriately as a craft union, a business union, the success of those radical caucuses actually helped build the IWW locally because it was raised the kind of expectations of workers. It became people became more interested in union history in general. And the IWW was kind of there as like a cultural group at the time, but not really doing any organizing. And the organizing took off. So it was like the kind of reversal of typically. IWW's forming and then like kind of influencing the culture of unions surrounding them. This was kind of the opposite. But I think there are limits too to like what was accomplished. So there were a lot of successes. There were a lot of left caucuses created. Like Nick mentioned, housing caucus was in particular one of the more popular ones. But I think the limits were that, I mean, this is a grad union, so maybe this wouldn't be the same for other unions, but the kind of temporary nature of grad unionists that they leave campus leaves with them a lot of historical memory and kind of ideas around direct action. So a lot of the leadership of these caucuses took off, like they disappeared, you know, because they graduated. But also like Nick's talking about is unions have this kind of tendency towards insularity themselves and caucuses become very easily subordinate and peripheral 
to the central operations of the union. During a year of collective bargaining, those caucuses became ancillary and like somewhat of an afterthought in a lot of ways. So they're going to be nurtured and cultivated as rank and file networks of socialists or whatever. And instead, they kind of became an afterthought. They kind of atrophied. And now I'm not in that union anymore, but it's very difficult to revive these things and resuscitate them in their life. So they become like very often temporary moments in a union's history and disintegrate and dissolve. It's hard to keep the rank and file alive within existing business union culture. Yeah, absolutely. A community garden, if built for someone else and not organically emerging from the community, is simply a plot that is soon to be weeds. And I'm saying this, I'm taking off my leadership hat in the union and I'm putting on my general membership hat. And I see just a bunch of vestigial limbs that now form nearly three pages of our constitution where these caucuses became formally codified. And almost all are defunct in practical terms. That's not to say they cannot be re-revived, but they're no longer organic, right? Say, you know, I'm going to make up a caucus. Uh, Say you have the vegan and vegetarian caucus. Uh, A lot of our caucuses look like affinity groups, not necessarily organizing around a working class need or a workplace common issue, but as defined are there. And then if, if, if no one's in it, right, if membership hits zero, which after bargaining and a lot of these formally now constitutionally recognized caucuses, which can't it's hard to be insurgent if you're a part of the constitution, <laughs> you know, just, just in practical terms. And then if there is an insurgent issue, maybe it, you find your way into an affinity group caucus that fits your, fits your form and function, and then you can carry it out. But yeah, I think, I mean, I think that overall the rank and file strategy that we've tried to foster as a core part of our union has transformed our entire co- small college town community. If I look at where the culture, not only of this union was in 2014 versus where it is now entering 2021, radically different. I don't think in 2014 you would have seen the union put material support into COVID community organizing and mutual aid, Black Lives Matter, disarming campus cops, environmental justice, housing justice, all all of these issues when it was a straight up business union protected by Janice, very comfy with its dues. And now I think even more than ever, we realize that there's a need for deep organizing and emergent strategy from the rank and file. So I think, yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag. In some way, the experiment with formalizing different rank and file group caucuses was great. But I think unless the community garden is truly an organic, kept thriving community garden, it can turn into a plot very quickly. Constitutionally protected plot plot. That is actually really super interesting. I'm glad to hear some of y'all's inside baseball. Uh, one thing that I was curious about, because I've never done, you know, been involved in that kind of business union. I'm in North Carolina. We don't have unions. Lowest density in the nation. But one thing that's, that was interesting to me was exactly what Andrew was saying. It doesn't sound like anybody, like they were caucuses, they were left caucuses, as opposed to the idea of dual carding, which is basically you just apply solidarity 
unionism principles and you build an organizing committee out of general members and you sort grievances and then you take direct action to get those grievances resolved. I mean, that's a strategy that's different from being, you know, it, it, it's usually not recognized in any way by its parent union, but is usually tolerated because it has no interest in being in the Constitution, being involved in bargaining or uh, trying to strip away members or competing. So it, it's interesting to hear about the left caucus experience that y'all have had. That sounds really interesting. Well, and also Nick and I have tried to think through some of these like direct action grievance committees, kind of like you're talking about, like the solidarity union approach. And I think some of the challenges, like just the lessons for any listeners that are trying to do some of these experiments in their own unions, like the imposition of labor relations is the structural challenge to overcoming these things and sustaining them. When you have a cycle of collective bargaining that takes up all the oxygen of the union, what is going to be tempting for anybody, for radicals, rank and followers, whatever, that want to like nurture their, their garden, <laughs> you know, plant their seeds, is they're going to want to get closer to the action of collective bargaining. And it's very, and like everybody goes in on that and that absorbs a lot of the energy and the focus. And then the imposition of the contract actually is the opposite practice of direct action to resolve grievances. Like they want to channel grievances into a formal system of meetings, HR reps, delegates, and so on. And uh, it's really hard to be, you know, I was on the staff side, so the staff, that relationship with members is always a little bit complex, I guess, to put it simply. Uh, but even if you're like a member that's really active, a steward or an elected leader, and you want to instill that idea into members and your colleagues, it's really difficult to get them to see like the need to not rely so heavily on the contract and the specific grievance process detailed there. Even as the grievance officer, you can say that stuff and it's really challenging to get them over that hump, right? These are the challenges I think of both dual carding, rank and file strategy, direct action and like unions is that the contract and labor law itself and just the, the culture of being in a union in general and being in a workplace is always the opposite of these ideas. It's always the opposite of these practices. I don't know, Nick, if you want to share, have, have you had any successes with this like model of grievances? Because I know this has been like something you've really wanted to cultivate. Yeah, no, I, I ran for grievances in our union because I wanted the experience of like trying to, trying to work on that aspect, right? Like when you, when you talk to organizers about getting an organizing job, they're like, you know, if you're going to apply to work for a union, have you run a an affiliation campaign? Campaign? Have you run bargaining? Have you run grievances? Like those are the big three, right? That they those those event skill sets. So I was like, you know, I'm uh, I'm skeptical of the grievance mechanism in U.S. labor organizing, but I'll try it out. And yeah, it's been like months of people being just suffering like extreme financial burden because our employer can't file documents on time or, you know, won't make their business centers do their shit on time. And basically when it comes down to it as the grievance officer, like I'm there saying like, this totally sucks. Like this is terrible, you know, like organizing conversation, right? Like validate and, um, and, and everything. But yeah, it's incredibly frustrating that everything that we file comes back with either you didn't file this on time because we, the union, couldn't know, have known this was an issue when it happened, or 
oh, well, this person, they ended up getting back pay a few weeks later, so we don't have to do anything about it. So we're just going to dismiss your your grievance. And like, I'm, I'm really sorry, Tim, because like the three of us keep basing this like in our our experiences in the same union, right? And I'm trying to keep it more abstract. But like in the case of like working with, I'm sure there are other unions like this, especially if we can get like more like Burgerville Workers Union and like fast food unions, although, you know, unions actually help re- employee retention. But when you have this built-in turnover where you have grad employees who are here for two years or they're here for four years or every once in a while you get someone like me or Andrea who was here for like six or seven years, you have the built-in turnover. So you, like Alex said, you don't have the historical knowledge and you lose your organizers every couple of years. But you also have this, we have this weird status within the university where we're thought of as students and employees in two, in separate spaces doing separate activities. And so we have a grievance process. But we have a grievance process within like an employment relationship where our employers can say this issue that you're experiencing, that doesn't have to do with your contract. That has to do with you being a student. So you can't like we're not even going to entertain this as an issue that we would like actually take on as your employer. It's frustrating. Yeah. And then like you spend all your time mired in just trying to figure out the details of labor law, the specifics of the grievance process, doing everything to the letter. And I I think uh, I'll share this and then we can move on to maybe a conclusion here because we have been, you know, discussing this for a little while. But a little anecdote for you all, a a crushing moment in my experience as a staff organizer was when I was helping process a grievance of one of our members, previous member. I really liked this person. They were pretty rad, definitely had like good politics and they weren't really actively involved, but they they had a specific grievance that they were seeking counsel with. And I had met them a few different times, kind of talked them through it gave some advice and they found it really helpful. And at one point they turned and looked at me after all this like information sharing and like what the process is like and so on. And they asked me, why aren't you a lawyer? And I just was completely demoralized. (laughs) Like everything, everything I had been doing must've been wrong up until that point. Like that was the worst possible thing. This person thought they were like flattering me. Uh, And I think was just genuinely curious about like, you seem to know so much of these intricacies. Why don't you like become a lawyer? I was like, oh my God, I've completely abandoned <laughs> my roots. This has all become mechanical and automatic for me. And I, uh, it, was, it was just such a clarifying moment. And they were just watching me completely confused by my exasperated response. <laughs> so. Well, actually, uh, I think you should run for Congress. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I have a question for the group, if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's on Moody. So like it's bringing everything back. Right. Um, But like if we look at this article where Moody basically his premise, right, is that socialists exist in the United States, but they're not close enough to the working the the working class labor movement. And like so his whole project is how do we bring these two groups together? And a big part of that is building a labor party. Like I think everybody on the call. I'm like, yeah, like Joe's got a, a wob, a wob picture up as their profile picture. Like as IWW folks, where we have this labor tradition where we're adverse to cooperating with political parties or like being a part of that arena as much, like, what do y'all think about his argument that the way forward towards socialism is to get everybody working together, like in a political arena? Well, I, I've been thinking about this quite a lot because, you know, that you only have so many shekels to spend in terms of dues elsewhere. And I've been short on some cash. And so I, you know, I'll be honest, I, I forgot to pay my dues to IWW one month and then I have kept forgetting. And whenever I remember, I'm like, well, maybe I kind of want to keep that 12 bucks for now. And where can I 
put it once I, I get full-time work. There's an organization called Socialist Alternative. They have branches a lot of places, but they have a very successful, very powerful political office here in Seattle where they have pushed and won on the $15 minimum wage. That was the Socialist Alternative Party and Congress and City Council member Shama Sawant's doing. Um, she and Socialist Alternative work so closely with all the labor unions here. They work closely with all different community organizing groups. Um, they passed a Seattle Green New Deal. They got an Amazon tax, which now the state is trying to overturn. The state is fighting the winds of the Socialist City Council member to try to prevent dual taxing of businesses. And this is a tax on just a few businesses that is generating tens of millions of dollars for the city of Seattle that can be put towards social good. So there is power. And I think that my biggest critique of DSA is in seeing what has become possible. And in today, today there was a rally because the right wing has or, organized through the court system a recall campaign. Right. Democrats love to talk about democracy, but now they're trying to recall her because she used her office to support Black Lives Matter. And they're trying to roll back the Amazon tax. They're trying to roll back the 10 percent cut to the police that the Socialist City Council member was able to get for. There were people from Ireland, MPs, Socialist MPs from Ireland on the call speaking, saying that as socialists, the win of outright socialist candidates in the United States is inspiring and needs to happen. And I think in terms of, I think what the conversation that um, maybe Alex can prelude to, to the, the specter conversations that are saying, well, what does it mean for the DSA? I'm not sure if it means investing so much in the democratic apparatus. And I think it looks like seeing what has worked, who is winning and building on that. So in thinking about where I can put my small amount that I have dues, I'm really looking at local organizations that are, even if it's a school board member, right, even if it's a city council member in a smaller city or in the 15th largest city, getting an outright opposition to Democrats who have a stranglehold on our urban centers, I see it as powerful. And it's very clear why UAW 4121, which represents 6,000 graduate postdoc and undergrad workers at University of Washington, have been really strong in supporting Shama Sawant and Socialist Alternative because that, that intersection of issues of the fight for 15 and the Amazon tax are worker issues. Those are working class issues. And, you know, it, it surely was not some business leader of the union that said, well, maybe we should leverage some of our support, even though UW is out of the district that Shama represents. Many of members, of course, live here. But it is the mutual shared liberation of that labor union in this town, their survival and their ability for their children, their partners, their spouses to get decent jobs for their friends and comrades who are houseless or homeless to get housing. The mutual liberation is there. And I see the literal successes outside my door of a socialist city council member. And so I think the abandonment of the political arena and of an outright socialist party and of one that's more than cosplay, like a real socialist party winning is a critique I have of organizing to support democratic socialist Democrats, you know? So I, I think it's good. I think there's power there. 
thank you for that comrade I guess I'll just share, like, honestly, on the question of political parties, for the most part, I guess I've gotten to the point where I'm fairly, like, agnostic about them to outright just, I don't think they'll work. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know how to say it more delicately than that. This, this is my, my quick view of the, the situation. When you're talking about a capitalist system, I think the workplace is the central power structure of that system. The relationship between worker and boss is the embodiment of capitalist power relations right there. Like that is the greatest disparity and inequality. It's right there. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't mean other struggles don't matter, like outside of the workplace, but I'm just saying it's like an arena that stitches together the entire social fabric is work and wages. Somewhere down the line, you have somebody, if it's not you, you have somebody in your family or relationships, whatever that relies on a wage that allows you to reproduce yourself socially. Like you, ha- you can't survive under capitalism without wages, meaning work is an imposition that everybody feels in some way. And the power that bosses lord over workers in the workplace is extreme. So what I don't understand about conversations like the strategic thinking around political parties is if we are able to build up a rank and file network of union members or, or worker organizations powerful enough to defeat their bosses and actually gain concessions at one of the most concentrated sources of power in capitalism, why would we build up all that strength and muscle to just surrender it to a political party that's going to act on our behalf in a different arena? It's like we shift sideways or actually become the background of the class struggle that we've been winning. Like, I, I, that's what I don't understand about it. So it's like, why not just prioritize, like, focus? If we can win in the workplace, why would we not continue focusing on winning in the workplace and trying to scale that and expand that outward? I guess that's where I come down on it. Now, I don't think that means that uh, you can ignore the state, but I think it means more specifically, in what ways do we choose to go into combat with the state? And I think that what you're saying, Andrea, makes more sense to me is like, at most, maybe we would run local politicians here and there, have some kind of small scale parties, but I wouldn't give my dues monthly to a socialist alternative or the DSA over the IWW if we're actually organizing workplaces. Like that's where I'm going to put, I'm going to pull my resources with unions, radically independent unions. So that's where I stand on it. But then again, like I'll say, I only share that now because the question was asked. Most days I'm pretty agnostic about it. I, I, I kind of don't, I kind of avoid the conversation. <laughs> and Andrea says her money is currently going to her 7-Eleven <laughs> coffee budget. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that uh, com- comradely rebuttal. I would I would say that where I currently am is my dollars are, are currently being Say that I'm I'm ex- I'm exploring. I will say just very briefly. I've been invited because I filled out the I'm interested in socialist alternative. And they organize by neighborhoods. My neighborhood's general branch meeting always begins with a 50 minute discussion of some technical article, and I've had shit to do with <laughs> with, with meetings that start with a 50 minute discussion of of socialist politics in 1930s Poland. <laughs> Like, 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 yeah, no, I'm with you. Like, I'm interested in organizing the workers in the workplaces. 
And when I push back, they're like, oh, well, Marxist theory is really important to building a socialist political party. I'm like, your Congress member, your council member is going to be recalled in a 50 minute discussion of Marx. And the capital that they can invest in, like overturning any kind of progressive legislation, it's just it's so overwhelming to even start thinking about. And and talking again about Moody's analysis of bureaucratic labor unions, the bureaucratic disciplining power of the state over things in the specific political arena are way more immense. Like there is so much red tape. Like Bernie Sanders can fundraise his campaign and all of the small donations that millions and millions of people give to him can exclusively be used only for political campaigning. It cannot be used for anything else. He can't like create like an independent workers party out of that money. Like it's not allowed by the state. You know, there's so many traps to try to avoid in that strategy. So anyway, uh, but I, I want to let Tim share his response. Yeah, well, I think you stole all mine. I'm, I'm, I'm probably a lot older than most of y'all on this call, and I've been an anarchist a really long time. So I really don't think the state has any right to exist. But I thought that uh, one thing I wanted to circle back on was the description of how collective bargaining and the operation of of the business union completely sucked the air, removed all the oxygen from the room around uh, rank and file activity. And and I thought that that was incredibly anal analogous to what electoral politics does to uh, sort of radical action. Oftentimes, is it is it just takes it and all it sucks it into a really safe place for the state for people's uh, political activity. So Nick, how about you share? And then I think we probably want to wrap this conversation up, not putting you on the spot to say, be fast. I'm just saying, I want to hear your thoughts about your own question uh, and then probably give people the opportunity to go eat dinner. Well, it's funny, Andrea and I just had this conversation the other day about avoiding isms, right? And like, I, I avoid isms when I talk about being on the left, the left myself, because I'm actually not sure if I would like put myself on like a use a party to seize the state or a, you know, fuck parties and fuck the state. And let's like, just like seize the whole thing and burn it down. Right. That's my facile understanding of the difference between communism and anarchism. This is a matter of methods and strategy. Right. And I haven't put myself on either side, like which one I'm going to throw, I'm going to double down on. But yeah, I think after reading Moody, I see his call to get unions to participate in state politics the, in a way that they do similarly, like in the EU. And yeah, I'm just not entirely convinced because a lot of times when you like follow the ladder of corporate America up, right? Like there's every year there's a, an organization who puts out the chart that shows like, here's all the brands in your pantry and here's the five people who own them, right? The folks who are, who are funding the politicians who are turning the state against the workers are, of, are often the same people who we are ultimately fighting against to try to improve our working conditions. So, yeah, I don't know. Right now I'm feeling state reform is not the best way to go. I'm also seeing Joe has a hand up. Yeah, Joe, please share. Yeah, it'll probably be my one comment. Uh, I resonate with your, your agnosticism and your uh, idea of where we should be focusing on building power, Alex. And I, I feel like there could be a future where there is a state that is something that could benefit the working class, but that that's not 
anything that we're going to get through get to by taking over state as it exists. It's going to take some kind of rupture, which is going to take the kind of power base you're talking about building. And I'm I have been just disgusted over the last several years hearing how people try to promote Bernie or the Democrats by saying that you know we we can elect them into power and then if we hold them accountable they will do do the right thing and they point back to FDR and say look that's how they did it back then but the reality was was that they didn't elect FDR in order to do that FDR got elected and there was a class war going on and that rupture of power is what shifted the possibilities of what the state was going to do for the working class. And it wasn't anything that was really guided by that rupture of power. It was just how things shook out. And that's that's my perspective on how to kind of juggle these questions of do we support the state or do we have hope in the state? It's, I, I like I said, support kind of a more agnostic position, but that if we're going to think about what's possible, we need to be realistic too. Well, thanks for sharing. I I think it's totally fair. One of the th- maybe we can wrap this up with the concluding thoughts. Folks want to share anything that they just didn't get a chance to toss into the conversation prior. But what you just said, Joe, what we we're just talking about is, I think one of the things that I like the most about Moody's analysis and quickly his kind of rebuttal of Jane McAlevey's kind of approach to organizing, whether or not we want to claim that he's correctly communicating her positions on things. His basic idea is like, look, the workers on the shop floor are the ones that organize themselves, and they have a lot of radical potential through doing so. And the danger is getting these uh, business unions or these like top-down structures try to absorb them and those radical energies into their structures and channel them into preferred forms of class compromise. And I think that that's pretty spot on. Now, Moody's conclusions you know, we can disagree with and so on. But I do think that that analysis of like the bottom-up power is what's most necessary. And the bottom-up power is always already happening. What we need to do is further and expand it and figure out how to attach ourselves to it. I I think that's probably the highlight of this reading for me. I I like that assessment probably more than anything else that he shares. I think it's a useful way for us to continue to challenge ourselves to not see external leaders, especially in a social media celebrity leader age, you know, whether it's high profile union leaders that are really cool or political leaders or Instagram celebrities, uh, but see the revolutionary potential of ourselves in our workplaces and of our coworkers and all of our mutual political development and that ultimately, if we get a 51% supermajority working class super strike potential across all industry, it's going to take us all forming coalition with people very different than ourselves. And that can only happen through radically organized labor across all industry. And I like that Moody puts that forth. We don't need different leaders. We need hands on deck at rank and file level. Tim, did you want to share any concluding thoughts or things to leave with? I uh, just said I really, really appreciate being part of this conversation. I enjoyed being with you all. This was really fun. Thank you. Thank you. And how about you, Nick? You can get the second to last word because I usually wrap these up. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I guess just something that's really going to stick with me from this reading that um, like we touched on for a second was this idea of the private welfare state and 
yeah, I know I just said that I, I'm kind of ambivalent about state reform, but you know, if you're gonna, if you want to participate in state politics, try to like, yeah, keep, keep working for Medicaid for all and all of these benefits that are, that we're getting through this paternalistic relationship with our employers. And it's not enough that unionized employees have healthcare. We all need healthcare. All right. Well, comrades, I really enjoyed this conversation too. I think this discussion went pretty deep, went pretty interesting directions. Uh, it was a lot of fun. So this will be a series. I really appreciate you all kicking it off with us and hope to have you back on Labor Wave in the near future. Thanks, Alex.